Welcome to the Critical Futures Podcast. It's critical because the time is now to conjure the world and communities we want to live and thrive in. But it's also futurity, or the intentional imagining and materializing of liberated futures where freedom from oppression, trauma, violence, and discrimination are realized. In this series, we chat with members of the Anti-Racism Consortium in partnership with the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. These are conversations between organizations and their community partners to highlight how to deeply work with community in a way that shares power and moves us all towards liberation. So thank you uh, to Johnny Chip Allen and Dr. Arthur James for joining us today. Chip Allen is a public health consultant and health equity expert and Dr. James is a retired obstetrician gynecologist and pediatrician, as well as a consultant addressing maternal and child health. Welcome to both of you. I wanna start by asking, when you hear the phrase critical futures, what does that mean to you and your work on anti-racist health policy or research on structural racism in the healthcare system? Well, the first thing I think we need to acknowledge is that, especially for um, racialized and marginalized groups, uh, clinical futures is extremely important because, unfortunately, in so many areas, racial disparities in outcomes, clinical outcomes, has been getting worse. Relative to anti-racist health policy, clinical futures suggest an aspiration for a time when clinical outcomes are equitable for everyone, that race is no longer a factor in determining the quality of one's life or how long someone will live, and that we create comparable living conditions and provide comparable clinical care for everyone. And so for me, um, first of all, I agree with uh, Arthur. I also look at it as interpreting to me that it's really critical for us to eliminate racism in all its manifestations, uh, which includes healthcare. And part of that requires that we have to question everything. We have to really think uh, of expanding our thinking on the not so obvious ways that racism tends to show up, not just in terms of the negative interpersonal interactions between the healthcare provider and the patient. But we have to really think about it in terms of even safeguarding emerging technology like artificial intelligence in clinical decision-making. This is so necessary so that our healthcare systems are effective in advancing health equity and optimal health for everyone. Thank you. So it seems that you have already begun to identify a couple of pressing issues, which includes racism, how racism can get including, included in emerging technologies, as well as issues around clinical guidelines. Can you talk more about these pressing issues and even other ones that you see, particularly in terms of structural racism in the healthcare system? Yeah, let me start that response from a personal perspective. I think many of us um, have been reluctant to single out to identify racism as quote unquote an excuse for uh, poor performance by racialized groups. Um, as time has gone on, so I'm speaking now as a 70-year-old 
retired African American. Um, I, I think it's I think it's time for us to acknowledge the extensive impact that racism has on the the relative to whites on the poor outcomes that that those of us of color experience in this country. And it's not, in my opinion, an, an excuse, but is in fact um, a fact. So having said that, in terms of responding to your question, I think getting American leadership, both non-clinical and clinical and policymakers, to accept that racism is real and primarily responsible for inequitable, inequitable racial outcomes is important. And that assuming we eventually get America to accept that, um, our question, our challenge becomes where and how do we begin dismantling racism? Because racism is so intricately woven into the fabric that makes up America that detangling racism risks, in my opinion, actually dismantling America. And I'm not sure that we're ready for that. So we probably need to begin one domain at a time. So concentrating and recognizing and alleviating racism in healthcare is probably as good a place as any to start. To do so, I think we need to use the template prescribed by Dr. Kamara Jones that suggests, A, that we respect and value all individuals and groups equitably, that we recognize and rectify past historical injustices and see that we apply the most help where it is needed the most. Begin this work, I think it's also important to understand that we live in an apartheid America and that we are probably more racially divided today than uh, since the Civil War. We see this by a rise in white supremacy, a substantial increase in racist rhetoric, an increase in race-based hate crimes with some white supremacists trying to provoke a race war. So all of this will make doing this work at this time more difficult, but it must be done in trying to wait till a more favorable time to do it, I think favors um, us being counterproductive. I remind folks in 1989 that James Baldwin said in his Price of a Ticket, when asked about the, lack, the, the time that it takes for us to respond to racial issues, he said, you've always told me it takes more time. Well, it's taken my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time, my sister and my brother's time, my nieces and my nephew's time. And I embellish his remarks by saying, and before them, it took my grandparents, great-grandparents, and great-great-grandparents' time. So, how much more time do we need before we begin in earnest to establish racial progress in this country? So I think it's important then for all of us to understand that um, no matter how unfavorable this time may appear to be, now must always be the time to advocate for racial justice in America. It's just a, a lack of widespread recognition uh, by the healthcare system, the structural racism, which is a, a byproduct of racist research and policies exist. And one of the things I think that drives that is these political determinants of health. Um, these political determinants of health, I believe, reinforce 
and sustain racist practices and policies in the healthcare system. And one of the things that it does is it ultimately functions to unfairly structure opportunity along racial lines. And one of the ways that we can really begin to see this, if you think about, for example, the behavior and activities of many medical societies or healthcare institutions, um, they don't appear to be based on all available evidence in terms of what they spend money on. They're not making substantial investments to understand how persistent healthcare disparities result from structural racism. And it really doesn't seem to be this sense of urgency and from state level medical societies to address this issue. So I think that we have to really come to grips and confront what's really going on. Great. Thank you for that. Um, especially as you both speak about the political determinants of health um, that Daniel Dawes has written about in the work of Dr. Kamara Jones on how racism impacts us all and really lessens uh, the ability of all in society to be able to excel. I appreciate that, particularly in terms of how that impacts health outcomes. As you started off talking about how disproportionately racial and ethnic minorities have poorer health outcomes, and really that being linked to issues around uh, racism and health policy and racism in healthcare. I wanna move us on to talk about what you and your community partners are working on because I get a sense that you are really on the ground trying to address some of these issues and how they impact not only individuals, but racial and minority groups generally. I'll start by saying that one of the things that my colleagues and I are often asked to do is to come into healthcare organizations and provide these presentations on health disparities and health inequities. And when we have those opportunities, one of the things that we try to do is, first of all, inform our colleagues that it is not normal for healthcare disparities to exist. And so we have to get out of this mindset that, well, you know, minorities or marginalized communities are often just going to have poor outcomes. So uh, because the racism that exists tends to actually make that mindset uh, prevalent. Uh, but the other things we also try to do is we try, um, and I'm not a um, healthcare provider like Dr. James, so while I don't address the clinical challenges directly, one of the things I do is take a public health approach by giving them the numbers in terms of the disproportionate impact of many of these health conditions to let healthcare providers know what's coming through their door. And not only that, um, we begin to start asking questions about now that this disproportionate burden is going to be coming through your doors. What is your level of readiness to be able to address, for example, the healthcare disparities that exist within your own institution? And some of them, uh, some of, of these institutions are somewhat shocked. Sometimes they're embarrassed, but also sometimes what they'll do is to say, well, listen, we know that we have healthcare disparities. We know that there's a level of racism that exists, but we are afraid 
that if we acknowledge this and actually begin to work on it, it would open us up to litigation that we're not prepared to do, that it's going to expose us in a ways that we don't think that we're actually able to deal with. And so, um, and that's a real barrier, you know, as we continue to work with these organizations. So we have to really get them to a level of readiness to let them know that they have to confront these issues and give them ways on how to do it. Yeah, well, I agree with everything that that Chip has shared. Um, I also think that that whole notion of being afraid of litigation um, is is in large part an excuse that this country has lived so long with these disparities that I think that a lot of people in healthcare, but 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 not just in healthcare. I think that those of us who are part of this affected communities have also bought into and embraced that these disparities are inevitable, that they occur as a consequence of something that is so substantially different about those of us on the basis of race, that that alone accounts for uh, the differences that we experience in terms of outcome. The beautiful thing about the International Genome Project is that it's said to us beyond any shadow of a doubt that we are all 99.9% genetically the same. And part of what that ought to infer then is that from a physiologic, biologic perspective, race alone does not identify why, in fact, the disparities that exist in terms of clinical outcomes occurs. And I think the evidence based on what we know today about social determinants of health, by what we know about the consequences of racism, I think the the data points pretty strongly to the fact that um, the disparities that exist today in terms of health outcomes, as well as disparities and inequities that occur in other domains, that they occur because we have made them that way. We have created a society that um, has has created these differences that, as Chip says, they are not natural. We need to drive that point home, both in clinical and non-clinical entities, that these disparities are not natural, that they occur as a consequence of the way we have organized America. and. The important piece of understanding and appreciating that is that if we know that we created them, then that should tell us beyond any shadow of a doubt that that we can fix them. Uh, Rick, I'd just like to also follow up um, in terms of what uh, Dr. James said. I think he's right on, on point. But even when you have the data, even when you have the evidence that shows that this is unnatural, that we can do something about it. The effect of racism in the healthcare system functions to ignore data and facts. And so part of the insidious nature of racism is the fact that, you know, we all have been trained in the academy to look at facts and science and then draw conclusions based on what we know. But racism it's so pervasive that it says, even though you have facts and data and you can prove your point, it doesn't matter. 
And that is, and that is the most insidious, or one of the most insidious parts of racism that we have to continually uh, confront. There are no alternative facts when you start looking at data and information in this regard. Chip, if you don't mind, I want to add to that by saying the following. It's not just being able to produce the data that, that documents that. We can also demonstrate the capability of decreasing and in some cases eliminating disparities in some healthcare areas. And rather than embrace that work and implement those intervention strategies that have resulted in those increased outcomes, we ignore them. We move the other way and in some cases actively dismantle the efforts that took place that resulted in improved disparity uh, outcomes. So I, I agree entirely, but it's, a, it's not just that producing the data, which we all hope will, would, would, um, would encourage healthcare institutions or politicians and others to respond appropriately, but even when we are able to document the capability of making substantial changes. Apartheid America re resorts back to its default position that in large part as a foundation that's been built on racism. Um, and we ignore those efforts and allow the disparities to persist. And I just want to follow up because I know you both work in healthcare in a different way. Um, I would love to get a couple of examples from you of the work that you have done where you've seen um, some movement. And perhaps we can start with you, Chip. Well, I can't say I've seen some movement, but I can certainly say that we've made some policy changes. So in uh, 2013, I had an opportunity to work with uh, uh, Director Angela Dawson of the Ohio Commission Minority Health and then Ms. Carol Ware, who at the time, of the Department of Medicaid. And one of the things we were able to do is for the first time, we were able to craft language for uh, Ohio Medicare, Ma Medicaid managed care contracts. And what we did is we actually put language in those managed care contracts that required every managed care organization who was doing work with Ohio Medicaid to have a health equity plan. So from our knowledge, that was the first time in Ohio's history that Medicaid had formalized language about health equity into their contract link. Now, there has not been um, any long-term studies to show the overall effect of that. Um, one of the things that Medicaid did do is to get a full-time health equity person, but in terms of those contracts, we don't know exactly what the overall effect is, but at least Based on 2013, what we did in terms of that language, we now actually have a baseline to be able to go back to those managed care contracts to determine how did they implement these health equity plans and what has been the uh, impact over a protracted period of time. So that's one of the things that we can point to that we have, um, you know, we're glad that it happened, but we certainly can't rest on those laws. Yeah, I'll, I'll provide two examples based on um, 
two different geographical locations. I moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan in 1988. At the time, uh, the state of Michigan had the highest black infant mortality rate in the nation. And within the state of Michigan, Kalamazoo County had the highest black infant mortality rate. Um, we were able to introduce some changes um, to address that high black infant mortality rate in Kalamazoo County so that while in the 1980s, black babies were dying at three times the rate of white babies, by the year 2000, we had decreased that inequity ratio to 1.4. Once again, we began to talk about the contribution that racism made um, to that disparity. And it wasn't just those of us in Kalamazoo who were beginning to talk about it. Nationally, that was the trend in the conversation. So Dr. Michael Liu, who had been a professor at UCLA and was at the time also the maternal child health director, um, bureau director at HRSA, addressed the, the contribution racism made, but our local community didn't like hearing that. Um, and so as a consequence, began to undo some of the things that we put in place so that while we had decreased the racial disparity in infant mortality to 1.4 by the year 2000, if you look at Kalamazoo County today, black babies are dying at three to four times the rate of white babies during the first year of life. But on the basis of that work in 2011, I was recruited to come to the state of Ohio to assist in efforts here. Ohio had um, a stagnant infant mortality rate that had not significantly changed for about 12 years and was in fact one of the worst in the country for overall white and black infant mortality. So I came to Ohio in 2011, hoping to prove that some of the things that we did in Kalamazoo County could have a significant impact on a larger, larger geographical area. We implemented several things um, while a consultant to the Ohio Department of Health and a professor at Ohio State. And by 2014, we had seen a significant decrease um, to the level of historical low rates for, for the state of Ohio for overall white and black infant mortality. And in addition, by 2014 marked the first time since 1939 that the total number of Ohio infant deaths was less than 1,000 at 956. We began again to talk about the way that racism contributed to the disparities that we were seeing. We talked about the importance of addressing social determinants. We introduced for the first time in this state a state wide infant mortality reduction plan. Uh, we formed the Ohio Institute for Equity and Birth Outcomes. We talked about the importance of standing up community um, for doing this work. But we also began specifically to talk about the importance of addressing the racial disparity, not just decreasing the overall infant mortality rate. One of the realities that we have to accept is that when we talk about decreasing disparities, what we're really talking about is in, in the case of infant mortality, is decreasing the infant mortality rate in the black community at a faster pace than we 
decrease the infant mortality rate in the white community. Um, and we have to do that by not compromising any of our efforts to decrease the white infant mortality rate. Those two things, in my opinion, are very, very important. The leadership in this state didn't like that approach, didn't like a discussion about racism, didn't like a discussion about addressing the social determinants of health, and in fact, um, didn't like the whole notion of recognizing the importance of including the disaffected community in the work that we were doing to try to both improve or decrease the infant mortality rate as well as address the disparity. And so as a consequence, I was marginalized. Um, I saw the state dismantle uh, some of the things that we had done that we know contributed significantly to improved outcomes. Um, and, and as a consequence of that marginalization, uh, I accepted, I, I decided to resign. But I want to go back to what I was saying earlier to a previous question. Um, even when we document the possibility of making significant improvements, the system is such that it goes back to that default situation that perpetuates the disparity. So if, in fact, you look at the state of Ohio today, in the year 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019, those five years, for each of those years, the state of Ohio has had the second highest black infant mortality rate in the nation. Uh, we remain one of the worst places in this country for black babies to be born. And it doesn't have to be this way. Um, that that's an important point that I think people need to appreciate and understand. And, you know, I know that I'm biased because my area of interest is in maternal child health. But I think some of the most egregious consequences of racism in this country is our tolerance of the rate of death of black mothers and black infants. I just like to follow because uh, Dr. James, I was there when you were doing that work. And, and and I was a witness to all the things that you had done to not only bring awareness, but to galvanize the state around infant mortality in a way that I can't ever remember in my over 30 years in public health that happened. But it just didn't stop in terms of uh, infant mortality. When you start looking at some of the recommendations that um, my colleagues and I were giving around COVID-19 and being able to understand who should get access to vaccine given the um, the conditions that made people at risk for um, that COVID-19 outcome. And in every case, when, when you try to take an equity approach to these healthcare issues, it always not only defaults back to racism of terms of um let's let's perpetuate this inequity even though they're saying that they want and i'm still talking about leadership and not just leadership in terms of our agencies but the the politicians who actually 
direct their activity. And it, it's, it's so pervasive is that, again, you would give an example of infant mortality. I was the director of health equity, and I actually was responsible for addressing all aspects of disproportionate health. And every time that we were actually trying to bring up those issues and talk about race, as a critical factor, we were never given the resources to do the work. And we start, we were starting hearing these messages. Well, we want you to do this work, but you got to really tone down that racism issue. So it's, it is if you're asked to promote equity and all these things and be able to, again, even in terms of the healthcare systems, but you can't even describe the problem for what it really is. And I think that is, again, the fact that racism and racist systems are not designed to protect themselves. But in fact, what they do is they perpetuate themselves over and over again. They just happen in different forms. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with you, Chip. Um, and I think one of the things that we have to be aware of as we do this work is to appreciate and understand that um that racism evolves that it doesn't stay the same all the time and that the the mechanisms by which um racism uh expresses itself uh, changes we see that today for example in response to what's gone on with um the work around critical race theory where people have made it out to be a monster that it is not um, um, but it's, it's again, one of the ways that, that, that racism, racism is, uh, evolves in this country. And I want to thank you for that because not only have you highlighted some examples where you were able to make change, um, that you still need radical change and shift because the system just defaults to where it is. I want to shift gears a little bit and just talk about something that both of you mentioned earlier, which is community and partnering and engaging community organizations and members in this work. So can you speak a little bit more about your work with community and how you think they should be involved in these changes? Sure, I'll I'll start, but you know before before I go there, there's another portion of the infant mortality data for the state of Ohio that I'd like to like to highlight for this podcast. All of us know that we, since 1990, the United States every decade establishes what we refer to as uh, healthy people goals. Um, we established the first ones in 1990, then in 2000. 2010 and 2020, we currently operate under the aspirations of healthy people, uh, 2030. The significant data that I want to highlight here is that we've now completed four years of healthy people. Where infant mortality goals are concerned for those four decades, the state of Ohio has achieved the healthy people infant mortality goals for white babies um, three of those four decades and did so in advance of the goal date. 
the state of Ohio to this day, we currently are in 2023, has never ever accomplished any healthy people infant mortality goal for black babies. So let's understand that. In 1990, the aspiration for healthy people was a black infant mortality rate of 12 deaths per 1,000 live births. In our most recent data for the state of Ohio, the black infant mortality rate was almost 15 deaths per 1,000 live births. We have never been as low as 12 deaths per 1,000 live births. The data is just so overwhelming in terms of the importance of paying attention to this disparity in this state and that this state has refused to address that more effectively is something that our listeners need to understand. Now, to get to your question about how we have tried to achieve um, engagement of the community. Where infant mortality is concerned, one of the first things that we did was to form the Ohio Institute for Equity and Birth Outcomes. It's locally referred to as Ohio Equity Institute of OEI. We also begin publishing preliminary infant mortality rate data instead of waiting the two-year lag time for that to occur. Um, we partnered with an organization called City Match to teach local health departments how to interpret and respond to their infant mortality rate data by a mechanism that's referred to as uh, perinatal periods of review. And we tried to help the organizations that became part of the Ohio uh, Institute for Ohio uh, Equity Institute to understand the foundational importance of incorporating um, grassroots level community uh, in this work. It, that's been essential. Of the values that we try to take in terms of partnership with community, um, I have tried to stand up and share the theory of relationality that. Uh, has been provided by Dr. Ronald David. Dr. David is a retired um, neonatologist of 30 years that is now a minister who says to us that relationships are primary and that all else is derivative, that we are relational creatures by nature, that we live and move and have our being in relationships through relationships and for the sake of relationships. That nothing comes into being, develops, or thrives, lives or dies, except in relationship. That it's not just what we are doing in relationship that is important. It is the intangible quality of the way we are being in relationship that matters. Therefore, isolation, alienation, marginalization, dehumanization, scapegoating, all those things that cut off our relationships with one another, Every tear in the fabric of human relationships is anathema to human being. That every tear in the fabric of human relationships is a way of entering into a disintegrative, dysfunctional experience, not just physiologically, but biologically as well. And he goes on to say what I think is essential in terms of this conversation. That whenever urban planning, public policy, or social service interventions adversely affect a group consistently, the persons who formulated those plans, policies, and interventions do not look like, have regard for, or knowledge of the disaffected. Conversely, wherever you find a plan, policy, or intervention that favorably affects a group 
consistently. The persons devising those plans, policies, or interventions identify with the benefactors in some significant way. Therefore, there's a difference in creating policy for ethnic minorities, women, or any special group, and co-creating policy with them. The participatory democracy generally, and for those special groups particularly, is critical to their health. So let's turn to how can funders support this work? When we start thinking about funders and of themselves, funders must realize that they have uh, a significant amount of influence in terms of how to provide communities with resources to do work that they would have never had before. But funders have to think about providing opportunities that exist outside their normal funding cards. And to that point, it's also important for funders to encourage a certain amount of disruption of systems. Sometimes um, when we think about, for example, Dr. King and uh, the Fannie Lou Hammers and all of those folks in the civil rights movement, you know, Jim Crow was an established way of life and it was codified in our type of law. But they had the courage to disrupt those systems so that America could live up to its full promise. And I think that we have to do the same thing here, particularly as we think about racist racism and how it shows up in these healthcare systems. But unfortunately, I think what's, what tends to happen, and I think this is part of the political determinants of health that are fueled by racism, is that disruptions of poor systems are sometimes considered evil or negative, where actually it is a fundamental American value. But anyway, I think, as I was saying, I think the disruption of the system in and of itself is necessary to move forward. And when resources are not avail made available through governments, funders can actually provide those resources. Great. Thank you for that. Um, what advice do you have for people just entering this work? The first thing I would I would suggest is the Im importance of recognizing what I mentioned earlier in terms of where we stand in this country right now and the special challenge that that offers us for for doing that work. But to not be discouraged or back off from doing the work, as I said earlier, now is always the time for us to stand up to racial uh, injustice. The other thing that I think is important is for us to partner with like-minded individuals, like-minded organizations for trying to do this work. Um, if, for example, in the state of Ohio, you attempt to do this work on an island by yourself, um, the forces that work against achieving racial ju justice in our state are so substantial and extensive that um, it makes it almost impossible for you to, to get anything done. In the clinical arena, there are many opportunities to align with national medical organizations like the American Medical Association, American Academy of Pediatrics, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the American Psychiatric Association, the National Medical Association, American Academy of Family Practitioners. The list is long. But all these organizations have established anti-racist statements 
and committed to policy changes amongst their memberships to make changes. The American Hospital Association has also made similar statements. We need to hold them accountable and partner with these large groups that have far-reaching uh, influence uh, to change the the way things are done in our country. On a clinical level within the hospital, it's important for us to work on eliminating race-based algorithms in clinical care. Um, so those help to perpetuate not only what we currently do in clinical care, but they're taught to medical students and residents that help perpetuate um, the racist stuff that takes place uh, in medicine. And just to follow up with that, I agree, uh, Dr. James, but I also advise anyone coming to this work that um, it is difficult. This, you're not going to see success in a few months or even a few years. And so you have to think of this as a marathon as opposed to a sprint. As I said before, systems, these systems that we are trying to change to have better outcomes for everyone, but these systems are designed to maintain themselves. They are not designed to change. And so when we talk about um, having the need to be a disruptor and to be able to cause uh, change in organizations, sometimes I have to ask people, you have to determine how much disruption you are willing to endure because these systems fight back. And you will find yourself, um, your reputation might be um, ruined. Your financial security may be disrupted or even taken away from you. Um, but as John Lewis says so eloquently, it's important to get into good trouble. And I think for the folks who want to do this work, they have to really internalize for themselves, what does that mean for them? Um, and even though that uh, when you get into good trouble, you may actually experience some hardships, as I think Art can attest to in myself, you will survive and you will come out better in the end. But you have to keep the faith that what you're doing is necessary and right. Totally agree. Totally agree. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. And turning to our last question, what do you hope the legacy of your work will be? For me personally, the more attention is paid to the importance of addressing overall equity in order to achieve um, that, that, that that notion of achieving overall equity is essential if, in fact, we ever hope to achieve health equity. Um, to put it another way, I don't think we can achieve health equity without achieving overall equity. So that while conversations like we're having today focus on health outcomes, we have to remember that the racial, where racial disparities are concerned, the recognition that racism is the root cause and um, begin the process of eliminating, eliminating racism is our country, in our country is essential to achieving the health equity that we would like to see occur. And I think for me, um, I want to acknowledge that, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. There's so many folks who have come before us who didn't have the data or the resources and technology, but they still got things done. But even though 
then we stand on the shoulder of these giants, uh, these women and men who've done incredible work. We have to do our part. We have to pull our weight and we have to be able to not only take the lessons they taught us, but to be astute enough to understand when those lessons um, don't work as well as they, as they used to and we have to learn different things. The other thing I would want our legacy to show is that we made some mistakes and we tried to learn from them and that we listened. But I like to uh, always uh, say this quote by Dr. Ram Alana Karinga, who says that um, it's an African proverb, often says in his speeches, and say, you know, that we told the truth, we exposed lies when we saw them, that we masked no difficult tasks, and that we claimed no easy victories. Because in doing that, lets us know that we can never rest on any good work that we've done, that the struggle continues. Amen. Well, I'd like to say thank you to both of you today. Uh, this is Rakaya Yerby, co-founder and faculty affiliate of the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity and a member of the Anti-Racist Consortium. And I just want to say again, thank you to Dr. Arthur James, Johnny Chip Allen for joining us today to talk about the ways that their work is moving us forward in terms of critical futures and ways that this work can be supported for radical change. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Critical Futures Podcast. If you're feeling inspired and looking for more resources, please check out www.ihje.org backslash podcast for show notes and links to resources and to subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.